All right. Welcome, friends, to the OrthoTalk podcast. This week is, can you believe it, episode number 10. Yeah, we've been doing this for 10 episodes now. Uh, so thank you guys for all your listening uh, and your comments and feedback. It's been great. Uh, episode 10, this week we have a very, very, very special guest with us, Dr. Ned Amendola. If you don't know who Dr. Amendola is, you are probably in the minority because he is a very well-accomplished orthopedic surgeon who's been in this game for a long, long time. Uh, and almost everyone knows him at this point. So uh, Dr. Amendola is the sports medicine director at Duke. He's a former AOSSM president and a world-renowned surgeon in both sports medicine and foot and ankle surgery. He's got a huge CV, over 200-something publications, way too many awards to list. But he's on top of all that, he's just a very, very interesting surgeon with a really great philosophy and a lot of great insight from years of experience. And it was really, really a pleasure to just sit down and talk with him for an hour. And I think this podcast has a little bit of something for everybody, whether you're an accomplished surgeon or a med student or a resident. So um, give it a listen. If you like it, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. 10 episodes have been great. we got a lot for the future. Um, without further ado, Dr. Ned Amendola. Hey, can we time out? All right. All good dudes. Stop what you're doing. This is time out. This is the OrthoTalk podcast. Today, we're doing a real conversation with an illustrious guest. Surgeons today are Asith Khalid and Jay Chen, antibiotics, ANSEF, of course, what do we even ask, fire risk, high due to lit conversations, and explosive topics. Any questions or concerns? Nope. All right, we can go. Incision. Welcome to the Ortho Talk podcast. We have with us a very special guest who needs no introduction, Dr. Eamon Dola. He's the former president of the AOSSM. He's uh, currently the director of the Duke uh, Sports Medicine Program, and perhaps his most challenging and, and important role is uh, being one of my mentors this year for fellowship. So welcome, Dr. Amendola. Well, thank you, G, but uh, it's absolutely no challenge at all working with you. It's, uh, it's been, uh, it's been uh, a fun year. And uh, anyways, I can tell you, I've had fellows for 30 years, and that's probably one of the most fun parts of my job. Uh, I've always been part of an academic center and uh, you know, you really build relationships with the fellows. I know it's only one year, but, but the relationship then lasts for the rest of, uh, rest of time. And uh, you know, you see your fellows at meetings, uh, they call you with, uh, you know, with cases, uh, you know, you, you meet up at uh, various places and uh, it's a great relationship. And I, I learn a lot from the fellows kind of, uh, you know, it's a two way street. So I've learned a lot from you this year. I think, I think you're going to be really be successful in your career. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thanks for having me on your, on your, on your show. I, I, wow. I appreciate that sentiment. That's awesome. Um, so a lot of people may know, they know who you are. How did you get to where you are? Where did you come from? What's your story? I think a lot of people would be interested in learning about that. Well, um, you know, I don't know how many would, would be interested. It's a, it's a convoluted story. You'd be surprised. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I am very proud of my history and uh, of my heritage. Uh, so I was born in, in uh, Southern Italy, in Cosenza, Italy, 60 years ago. And uh, it's, a, it's a funny coincidence. The day I gave my presidential speech as the president of the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine, that day was exactly 
50 years after we immigrated from Italy. Um, you know, so it was kind of coincidental that uh, we came as immigrants really with nothing um, to uh, North America. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, through hard work and, uh, you know, meeting a lot of good people and uh, getting a lot of support from people got to the got to this point. But uh, just to 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 summarize, I, I we immigrated when I was eight years old from uh, southern Italy because it was uh, a poor economy at that time. My dad uh, was a laborer. He worked at many jobs. Uh, you know, the southern half of Italy is a very agricultural part of the country. And uh, and so the economy was poor. And, and uh, there's been many times where there's been a large immigration of people from Italy to uh, the United States and Canada. And uh, the late 60s uh, was one of those times. It was a huge number of Italians that immigrated. And uh, a couple members of my, my dad's family had come and said, you know, there's a lot of jobs. And so we decided to go um, and uh, basically, you know, came and uh, I hated it, you know, the first few years, you can't speak the language, uh, you don't know the customs, um, you go to school and you can't understand, um, you know, what's being taught, but nonetheless, you persevere, you get through it. And, uh, and uh, my parents were very supportive, you know, my parents were very smart, but uh, they didn't go to school, but they were very smart. They wanted me to go to school. They supported me going to um, university. And, uh, and then when I was in university, I, I had an, an academic scholarship in engineering and, and uh, cause my parents couldn't afford to pay, you know, for, for university tuition. And they said, you can go as long as we don't have to pay. And, uh, and that's where I, I met, um, Jack Kennedy was our team physician. I played, played football. And this was back in, in Canada at the University of Western Ontario. And uh, he took a liking to me and he was one of my, my early mentors and says, you know, Ned, you need to go to medical school. We need people like you to come into orthopedic surgery. And that was kind of the beginning. I, I uh, applied to medical school, got into medical school, then got into orthopedics. I did that in London, Ontario. And then when did my fellowships and uh, they wanted somebody back in, uh, in London uh, to do sports and foot and ankle. And uh, so I went back and did that for 10 years in London. And then uh, because of the Canadian system and some of the uh, issues there, and you can talk about that maybe a little bit, uh, moved to Iowa in 2001. And then I uh, was there for 14 years and then, and then uh, moved to Duke. So I've been here at Duke for the last five years. So it's been, uh, it's been quite, a, uh, quite a path. It's been very enjoyable. I've met a lot of people along the way. I, I really feel um, I've, I've learned a lot. I feel like I've, I've given everything I got everywhere I was, you know, back in Canada, in Iowa, and now at Duke. You know, you really, uh, as long as you work hard and you treat people with respect, it, it gets you a long way. You know, that immigrant story that you talk about is not really one that's represented well in our specialty. And I think it's kind of interesting because we have three people here on this podcast that have a pretty similar story. Like, Jay, you weren't born here, right? No, I, I wasn't born here. Um, in fact, I was, I was born, I share a birthplace with, uh, with the coronavirus. <laughs> which I, was born, I was born in Wuhan. 
uh, <laughs> interesting enough. Um, so people used to not know where I, where what city I came from. I would say I'm from Wuhan. People wouldn't really know where that was, um, and now everyone knows. So I'm kind of famous through that, I guess. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Um, I moved to America when I was two years old um, from China, and I don't I don't remember much of uh, China at all from before I moved. But um, I do remember being really small, and my mom asking me if I liked it in the states and if I wanted to stay, and uh, that's all I knew. So I said, Yeah, I love it here. Why would I Why would I go anywhere else? Um, so that's that's kind of my story. Yeah, I was I was born in Karachi in Pakistan, and. I think interestingly, I, I tried to look this up and I could not find anyone else that was born in Pakistan to graduate from an American residency, except me and one of my co-residents who were born in the same city around the same time and graduated from the same residency in the same year. So that's <laughs> pretty funny. Um, yeah, same thing. I, I came here when I was one and, uh, you know, my family had, had similar thing, not a lot of money coming in, but they were medically trained. So my mom did her residency over here and my dad worked a lot of service jobs like, you know, uh, like grocery store jobs, retail jobs to kind of support us to get through. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's not one that's really well represented, I think. Well, I think, I think uh, both you guys uh, and uh, myself, you know, it's a, it's, it's a good story. It's a feel good story where you work hard and uh, you're aware of, of what, what you need to do and persevere and uh, things, you know, good things happen as you, as you go along the way. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's the, it is the American dream. You know, yeah. this is what people come here for. And I think if you work hard, um, despite of all the uh, issues and problems that are going on in this country, it is a great country in many ways. You know, it allows you to thrive and succeed as long as you, you know, persevere and, uh, you know, put in your, your time, put in your uh, effort and, uh, you know, Stay humble. I think you guys have, have done a great job. How do you how do you know when it's um, when it's time to transition from one practice to another practice? That's something you've done a few times. And what tees you off to to when it's time to do that and try something new? Well, that's a good question. I I think um, you know it kind of goes down to the heart of what makes you happy every day. Uh, I think we all, you know, in one way or another, think about that consciously or subconsciously. So if you're going into work and, uh, you know, you're just kind of feeling miserable a lot of the time. Like, I enjoy orthopedic surgery. I enjoy taking care of patients. I enjoy patients being satisfied. And, you know, that's what I like to do. But if you're coming home and that itself is not totally you know, satisfying you and keeping you happy. So if you're coming home and you're married and you, know, you have kids and, and your wife says, you know, Ned, you're miserable. Um, you have to kind of start looking at, at the situation. And, uh, and so I think happiness at your job is one of the key elements that makes you happy. I think, you know, you need, everybody needs somebody that loves them. Um, but you really need a challenge every day. You need a job that, that uh, keeps you going every day. And so if your job, for whatever reason, is not providing that challenge and that uh, happiness that you're looking for, that's when you start thinking what's going on and what's wrong. Um, so as an example, in London, Ontario, I thought I had my dream job. You know, I, I went back to where I trained, you know, where I played football. 
all my social network, my wife's social network, all our kids were born in London, Ontario. I thought I would never move. But then when you start uh, getting, feeling repressed because of, of many things, you know, the government controls, controls healthcare. You know, you want to build a sports medicine unit and you're not allowed to do that because you have no control over expansion. You have no control over recruiting and hiring. Uh, financing and funding of what you're trying to do is getting, you know, rationed, then it eventually wears on you. And uh, so in my case, you know, I had, a, I had my waiting list for surgery, elective surgery in Canada was 18 months. You know, you do a good job, you get a lot of people wanting to uh, get taken care of by you. And so my office was spending every day trying to talk to people and explain why they had to wait. And it, it wasn't my doing couldn't have the resources to take care of patients. So eventually you just, you know, especially if you're at meetings, you know, you're going to the, you know, the annual meeting, uh, the academy meeting, the foot and ankle meeting, there's a lot of friends. They say, well, why don't you come and look at this job or that job? And, uh, and so that's what happens. I, I think, I think that's, that's the key ingredient in happiness in a day-to-day -day, uh, situation is, is you going into work. If you can go into work and you're happy, with the people you're meeting, you're happy with the job and you're happy with, uh, you know, everything going on. Um, and, uh, you know, then I think everything's going to be fine. But if you're coming home and you're, you know, you're, you're basically feeling a little bit repressed um, and uh, kind of beaten down, I think you need to kind of look at things in a little different light. So that challenge, that Canadian challenge, we had a friend of ours, Bill Weiss, who's a, um, he's a sports med he's kind of similar to sports medicine, foot and ankle surgeon in uh, El Paso. And uh, he, he kind of had a similar problem. He did his uh, sports medicine fellowship up there, could not find a job, came down here to do another sports medicine fellowship in Dallas, still couldn't find a job, did a third foot and ankle fellowship in Galveston, and then still couldn't find a job and was doing locums for a while before he finally found a job that would take his visa. Um, it's, it's an unfortunate story for a lot of Canadian surgeons. Uh, there's just not, not enough jobs. And I guess the healthcare system up there is not really reflective of the uh, need for surgery. Like you're talking about the waiting times that they have. It's just, it's crazy to me. Yeah, it's, uh, I, th I think it's slowly improving. Um, but you're right. I think that there is basically a surplus of surgeons, you know, they can't find jobs. Um, and not that, uh, not that there is no capability to, to have surgeons work. It's that um, in every situation, you know, every, every province, every hospital, all the funding comes from the government. So if you have a limited amount of funds, you're going to have a limited amount of OR time, limited amount of resources, you can't keep hiring surgeons to take care of patients. So basically it's the way of controlling the costs. They basically control, you know, the number of, of surgeons, number of implants, number of everything that's getting used. And, uh, and again, it's driven by, by the public. So there's a lot of good things in the Canadian system, like trauma care, cardiac care, cancer care, I think is, is good. But when it gets to elective surgery, like, like orthopedic surgery, I think it gets put down at the lower end of the list, and therefore the waiting list for foot and ankle is is really long. The, the waiting list for rotator cuff surgery is really long. You know, knee arthroscopy; these are all elective procedures where the waiting list is just going to be much longer time than, uh, say, uh, 
you know, a, an emergency cardiac procedure. Do you worry at all about our healthcare system turning into that? Yes, I, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons I, I moved. I, I, you know, I do think that there's, there's um, an opportunity to really have the best of both systems. You know, I think we need to provide care for our people. At the same time, I think people should have a, the, the option of, of paying for their own health care. Mm-hmm. which that option doesn't exist in, in Canada. So, in, you know, in, in Canada, it's a one-payer system. Right. So there's no outlet. And uh, I think in, in the United States, as well as many other countries, they have a public system that kind of takes care of the basic uh, care of everybody. Uh, but then there's also a, a private option. So if people want, you know, um, more immediate care, or they want to pay for something out of their pocket, or, and uh, they don't want to go through the public system, they're Allow, allowed to do that. And so I think in America, that, I don't think we're ever going to get to the uh, to that Canadian system, but I think we will get to a point where we're going to have some uh, public support so that everybody has some level of care. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're going to have the, the free market system where patients can look for the best surgeon. Uh, they can shop around and they can decide what, what level of insurance coverage they like. Yeah. Yeah, that you know that part, the part about finding the best surgeons is interesting because no, I think that's a big disparity between our profession and the general public. Is most people go to their doctor and they assume that their doctor is the best, right? To get through medical school to do all that, you you assume that they're good. But we, I mean, we all know there's different levels of doctors, there's different levels of surgeons um, that can take care of different level of complexity uh, cases, and the public doesn't really appreciate that yet. But yeah, I guess you know if we get to that point. I mean, it's kind of scary to think that maybe, you know, the general person might, might base their surgery on your Google score or your Yelp review or something like that, you know? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a bit concerning. And, uh, you know, I have four children, so I, I've been on the sidelines, uh, you know, I'm watching my kids, you know, participate in, in sports and dance and figure skating. So you're sitting beside parents all the time and they don't know that you're you're a doctor or anything like that. Uh, you know, you're just one of the regular parents. But generally speaking, if if it's routine care, you know, if uh, it's an ankle sprain or yeah. shoulder dislocation or even an ACL tear, most people think they can go to anybody and they'll get the same level of care. I think when the problem becomes more complex, in other words, you know, they have a family member with cancer or right. you know they have a failed surgery or an infection, then they start asking around saying. You know, who should I go see? Who's yeah. the best, best person? But I, I think with the information age, uh, you know, internet and everything, I, I think things are continuing to evolve. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I guess you're, you're lucky because you made your reputa- reputation before that, right? I mean, for me and Jay, we're, we're, we're going to be asking people to spam five-star reviews on our online course. Yeah. Let's redo each websites. other after, after this. Let's give each other five stars. But... Well, I think the best thing you guys can do is these, this first, I would say, five years, you should just enjoy what you do. You know, do a good job, take care uh-huh. of your patients. And word of mouth is a big thing. You know, so if you, you uh, take care of patients well and, uh, you know, the, the word will spread pretty quickly. Your confidence will, will go up and you'll become much better. Like, I know you guys are good now, but those first two or three or four years in practice, you're going to become very efficient. Uh, you're going to 
you know, be doing things on a more repetitive basis. You're going to get a routine and you're going to become good at your craft. You got to be good at what you do. And then once, once you got that base, once, once you're strong, then I think, you know, things will open up. I think you can work on your marketing and, uh, you know, your, your press gainy scores. Yeah. It's a dreaded words. <laughs> How do you, um, when you're starting out, uh, I'm going to be starting out in academic practice and trying to do a lot of the things that you're doing in terms of teaching. How do you balance uh, doing that, letting the residents get hands-on um, experience while also figuring out, like you mentioned, your base and your foundation and, and setting yourself up and, and what, how you like to do things the way you want to do it? How do you achieve that balance when you're first starting out your career? That's a common, that's a common question. And, and um, it's different for everybody. You know, like I've had fellows uh, go into practice in an academic setting. And then after a year, they, they think they weren't suited for academic practice because they don't like uh, having somebody else operate and somebody else do the surgery. And uh, whereas other ones I think are more confident and or maybe they are a little bit more cavalier, you know, letting others do the surgery so they find it a little bit easier. But I, I think it's the same. I think it's generally the same for, for everybody. I think you do have to spend the first year or two making sure that you're doing a good job. And uh, I think it's common sense. You're going you're gonna to see and you're going to realize what, what you can do and what a resident or fellow can do. Uh, and I think the res and I think communicating with the resident or fellow beforehand, I think it's very it's uh, very important uh, that they understand the stage of of your career, that uh, you can't you know you can't you can't let things um, bad things happen, and that uh, you know you're going to look at cases in detail and uh, you're going to have a plan and you want to follow it clearly and so I, I think in the first year or two I think it would be expected that you're going to have a much more hands-on involvement taking care of cases. Um, and so I, I, I think it's a matter of uh, people in your, in your group understanding where you sit. You know, so you, you know, so the older, if you're, if you're in a group situation, the older members of your group need to communicate as well with the residents and fellows. I think they be, need to be supportive of that, you know, because I think residents tend to complain. If they're not doing surgery, they tend to complain that, <laughs> Hello, <laughs> too. I work with Dr. Chen. He doesn't let me do anything. <laughs> you, need, you need the uh, the support of the of the of the rest of the group, and that's happened at Duke. You know, like I, I've had to. You know, um, like I'll get reviews of of some of my faculty uh, from the residents saying, you know, we don't like this rotation because we don't do any surgery, and so I think you have to really kind of preface the the rotation and, and what you get out of it and uh, that you can learn from watching you can learn from uh you know sharing in the procedure you don't have to do the procedure yourself and uh so it's uh, it's an it's 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 important to make sure that everybody on your team and everybody around you understands what's going on dr I don't know if you know this, but one of the first things that pops up when you Google your name is that you met the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> it's a news story, but you met the Pope. What was that like? Well, it's it was phenomenal. Both my wife and I felt the same thing when when uh, we shook his hand. You know, and it's obviously uh, your your conscious, uh, your brain 
It's like, it's like, you know, shaking somebody's hand uh, with 2000 years of history. Yeah. Now he's very warm and uh, kind, but uh, it's a funny story. Um, I don't know if you know that the, the, so I have a lot of fellows from uh, Italy. I've had a lot of fellows from Italy and uh, other countries in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so a couple of my uh, former fellows uh, from Rome uh, work at the hospital that takes care of the Vatican. Oh, okay. And uh, so the their professor um, wanted to invite me to come and, and help him uh, do a couple of cases there. So over about a year period, we got four cases together that the professor wanted me to help him uh, do surgery on. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, they sent me the x-rays and, uh, you know, these are, we basically did, uh, uh, three, three osteotomies around the knee, two, uh, two, uh, femoral osteotomies, one tibial osteotomy and one uh, unit compartmental knee replacement. And, uh, you know, they sent me all the x-rays, they sent me the case, we planned the case and, uh, and so I flew to Rome on a Thursday night, got there like at 5 p.m. And then uh, one of my fellows, uh, former fellows picked me up and uh, we went to visit the families in the hospital, the four families. And you know how Italians are, it's a group thing. It's probably the same in your- uh, Yeah, in your So the whole family was there and I'm speaking to them in Italian and they're kissing my hand and you know, that I'd come there to uh, save them. And uh, so now it's like, you know, nine o'clock at night and I had flown all day and I was getting tired and, and they said, okay, now we need to go pick out the instruments. So we went downstairs and they had all these trays of instruments and we picked out like, you know, the retractors and the scissors and the, the implants were fine, but we had to pick out the regular instruments for these cases. So now it's like 11 o'clock at night and uh, we meet the professor in downtown Rome at a nice uh, restaurant and he was there by himself waiting and uh, we got there and we started eating and uh, we had you know a nice uh, seafood dinner some some wine and uh, we finally got got done like at at one in the morning and then we started surgery at at uh, seven in the morning and we did these four cases and the four cases were transmitted to an auditorium and I communicating what during the case and uh, they went fine and then we went out to dinner Friday night and it was like nine o'clock at night and I'm falling asleep at dinner because I was <laughs> tired. And the professor says, oh, you're very tired. I said, yeah, you, you, you made me work really hard. He says, well, we have a special gift for you. And the gift was, was uh, meeting the Pope, having a private audience with the Pope. That's awesome. It was, uh, it was a wonderful visit. Now we, we uh, will never forget it. Um, you know, we got a ton of pictures from the Vatican. Like when you're with the Pope, everybody's taking pictures all the time. So I probably that picture that's that's on the uh, uh, when you Google is is yeah. one of the pictures taken at the Vatican. That, that's an amazing experience. Um, I hope one day I can meet the Pope. But having worked <laughs> with somebody who has met the Pope is the next best thing. So uh, put that on my Google as well. <laughs> fifth degree of connection, right? Isn't that the thing? Exactly. And yeah, and Mo, Dr. Clid, you know me, so um, <laughs> now I'm there too. That, 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 well, so. 
Uh, Dr. Amendola, you've, you've devoted your career to sports medicine, taking care of athletes, and uh, you've accomplished so much in that field. What's, what's it like um, taking care of these college, collegiate athletes, professional athletes? Uh, do you approach it the same way as taking care of non-athletes? Um, what's your mindset for that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah, we basically do the same thing for athletes and non-athletes in terms of the surgery, in terms of the surgical care. I think the difference comes in uh, decision-making, you know, for athletes, you know, it's a little bit more involved. And I think that's where the downfall comes uh, in practice, you know. So, you know, I think seeing a, uh, you know, somebody with a arthritic ankle and, uh, you know, deciding what to do and, and their laborer, I, I think it's pretty, it's pretty routine. Uh, I think seeing an athlete who's, um, you know, functioning, at uh you know functioning at at 120 percent then has an injury and you have to do the surgery and get them back to to being 120 percent is i think it's a much more difficult task if you know what i mean so yeah. if, you, if you have somebody that's suffering from arthritis and they're functioning at a you know level one out of ten and you get them back to a level eight out of ten that's a success you know, an athlete who's functioning at 10 out of 10, and then you do the surgery and you get them back to eight out of 10. You now that doesn't quite, you know, work yeah. out well. So I think that's the key to being a, uh, a good physician for athletes is to understand, you know, what you're dealing with, communicating that to the athlete and their team, you know, and their team consists of the parents, the coach and everything else. And then the expectations after after the surgery and where they're where they're going to get to. And so, you know, I think that's why a lot of a lot of orthopedic surgeons don't like sports medicine too much. I think it, it takes a lot more communication and understanding of these nuances to get them back to the level that they expect to get to. And and um, at the same time, you need to be positive. Like if you're a negative team physician, you're not going to be a team physician very long. Mm. You know, so if they get somebody blows out their knee or blows out their, you know, they get a, a fracture dislocation of their ankle and you say, wow, your career is done. If that's the first thing you say, <laughs> they'll find somewhere else. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, I played, I played sports when I was young, I played uh, soccer and then played football. So I think playing sports and team sports, I think helps you understand the mentality of the coaches and the mentality of the players and and that's been my uh you know one of one of the things that's been told to me by the you know the the coaching staffs at Iowa you know I work with Iowa football Iowa wrestling basketball they really enjoyed the the positive approach with the athletes no matter you know if if somebody's career was in jeopardy and and I think here's the same I think we got great coaches at at Duke as you know and um you know coach K coach Cutcliffe uh really all the coaches they really understand um, everything about success. And so when I came here at Duke, I, I'm sure the first year or two, these coaches are looking at me like, who is this guy? And I think they looked at me very carefully when I was communicating with, uh, you know, their stars and their players. They often came to the, uh, the players' visits just to see my method of communication. Yeah. And uh, they talked to their athletes about how they felt after coming to see me. So you get evaluated by the coaches to make sure that you're the type of person that they want 
you know, yeah. taking care of their kids. Yeah, something about Duke athletes, though, because the, the Pelicans over here have a lot of Duke athletes, and those guys are all really nice and well-spoken and, uh, you know, very receptive to, you know, the care that we, we give them. It's something about Dukies. I, I don't know what it is, but, uh, you know. I guess you guys have taken care of the same players. Probably. Actually. Probably recently. Without a, <laughs> yeah. 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 I just realized that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you've had some, you've had some players. You have some players that had injuries now with the Pelicans, and yeah. uh, but I think that's probably due to the co- the the recruiting. Yeah, <laughs> you know the type of players you recruit. You know, you're recruiting people that are you know, yeah, are uh, humble and and willing to uh, be team players. Right. And listen to the coach. So so how do you manage? Because you've been at some pretty high level. Uh, you know, spotlights and you've had some high level injuries with a lot of media attention. I'm sure you've been pressured from coaches, agents, families. How do you, how do you successfully navigate those waters and, uh, you know, try, you obviously can't make everyone happy. Um, but I guess your job is to kind of make the least amount of people angry as possible. <laughs> um, I don't know. What, what's your thought on that? The kind of the philosophy behind making these decisions? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that happens frequently, you know, especially with these high-level players that are going to be, you know, top 10 draft picks. Mm-hmm. They, they've got a, you know, a group of people around them that talk to them all the time, you know. So if, if a kid has an injury, uh, I think you need to expect that they're going to come back with, uh, you know, a number of questions from these other, not right. necessarily from the athlete, but really everybody around them. Um, and uh, sometimes... Um, you know, they, they want to get another opinion. And so I think, I think, first of all, you need to be, you need to be honest, you know, about uh, what's going on, what your feeling is and give a good rationale of what your opinion is. And, uh, and uh, often if they're that high level, if they're, you know, top 10, they'll go get another opinion. Right. And uh, you should offer to help, you know, you should offer as a, as a head physician, you should say, look, yeah, no, I'm just I'm just one person giving you my opinion. But if you'd like to get another opinion, we should get we should help you get it. Where do you want to go? Do you want to go to your hometown? And mm-hmm. and a lot of the time they they'll have their own position from where they came from. You know that uh, it's like you know like the Pelicans. You have Pelican physicians, but a lot of the players right. go back to their hometown and get taken care of by their uh, home physician. Right. And so I I think you can't you know be restrictive. You have to you have to be honest. You have to give your opinion. You have to give a rationale of, of wh- why you're giving that opinion. And then if they have a uh, questions or suggestions, in other words, um, if they say, well, what do you think about this doctor? Um, I think if there's some benefit to what they're suggesting, I, I don't think you need to say, oh, that's, you know, that's garbage or anything like that. I think you can, you can say, well, that's a good, that's a good idea. You know, the, Mm-hmm. The reason for suggesting that is this, this, and this. The reason for not doing this is this, this, and this. But we could we could do that. We could incorporate that into the treatment plan. You know, so you're you have to be amenable uh, to you know what's going on. You don't have to change your mind, but I think you have to listen. You know, to to what what's going on. And so I think over time, uh, what happens on a team is that the word gets out you know, that Dr. Amendola is pretty honest, you know, he's always, you know, tries to give us the best opinion, what's good for us. He's not, 
making decisions of what's just good for Duke. You know, he's making decisions of what's good for us. And um, so I think once that milieu is developed, then I think it's a lot easier. Um, You know, I get a lot of second opinions, you know, from the, from the NBA, uh, NHL. um, And, uh, you know, they come, they come because they, they've heard that you're going to give them an honest opinion. So they have a team physician, they've got an opinion or they even have two opinions and they come to you to, and, uh, and again, in that situation, if you say, well, you know, those guys are no good. You need to come here for surgery. That's not the right thing to do. You know, you have to kind of say, I think, I think your team physician is making the right decision. I think this is, you know, the right thing to do. The only thing I would add is, is this, you know, and uh, so you make them feel good about what they're doing and you add something of value. So I guess what I'm saying, the, the whole thing depends on, on honesty and having the trust of the, of the athlete, you know, that what yeah. you're doing, what you're saying is for them and it's going to help them. But I think if they feel that you're doing it for a different reason, like you're doing it for yourself to make some money right. or you're doing it for the team, yeah. it's not going to work out. I think that's, that's becoming apparent now is a lot of this distrust between players and medical staff, especially at the professional level, because they see the medical staff as an extension of the team and the coaches and might not have the player's best interests at heart. And I guess it's a, it's a problem that we've probably as, as sports medicine have been facing and it's kind of erupting now a little bit, like you're seeing more lawsuits against surgeons and that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I, I think communication and keeping your ego at the key at the door, like you said, is probably the, the way to combat that. I agree. Well, it's, it's a, it's a two edged sword. Yeah. You have to, as coach K says, um, you know, the term leave your ego at the door, it does have some merit because you want everybody to be part of the team, but you really want every athlete and every member of the team, including the team doctor to bring their ego in and use all their skill set. In other words, if you're the best surgeon in the world, you should be able to use those skills uh-huh. and uh, you shouldn't be, you know, ashamed, you know, that, that you're the best. In other words, so that's how, you know, coach K said he, you know, in terms of, of, of leading the, uh, you know, the, the Olympic team, where you got all these superstars, that's what he, he would tell me. He says, I want you guys bring your ego in, bring all your talents into the room, and we'll figure out how we can use your talents to work as a team. Instead of saying, yeah. I want you guys to leave everything outside this room, and we're going to design a new team. That was a, That's interesting. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking about it. I always was one of those people saying, leave your ego at the door. But now you want to say, you're really talented in this area. Bring it here. Let's let's make yeah. use. Yeah, that's a good thought. Yeah, yeah Coach K, I, I've uh, I've I've been a fan of Duke basketball for some time uh, because I was a Duke student uh, for undergrad. And he's got a lot of these interesting uh, sayings that you know that really really are are pretty wise. So he, he also says, uh, "Just be you. You is enough." And I've always thought that was good because when you're part of a team, you try to overcompensate sometimes if someone's injured or you may try to do more than your ability, but uh, you you're on the team for a reason because you're really good at something. And that's, that's all you need to, to accomplish is, is just perform what you're good at and you don't need to overcompensate. So that's something I thought was wise as well. No, I, I agree with you. And I think you can see now, especially in this, uh, you know, this age of, of uh, basically looking at, at the way we treat each other, uh, some of these programs are getting criticized because they're, 
they're basically very, very controlling. You know, once you get into the program, basically trying to make you into somebody you're not. And uh, so yeah. people are feeling like they're walking on eggshells and they're looking at getting looked at the wrong way instead of feeling like this is my home and I can be who I need to be to be successful. So I, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that is one of the reasons for success is to recruit people and, uh, and basically say, yeah, we, we want you to be you, you know, we want, you know, you're, you're a three point shooter. Just, t- just keep shooting. You know, so you have a bad game. It's okay. Just keep shooting the next game. You know, it's uh, you can't, can't change what, what somebody's makeup is. So I think you're right. So I've heard uh, Dr. Rob Anderson, I've heard him give talks before about being a team physician and the sacrifice it takes. Now, Dr. Amendola, you're obviously a family man. Uh, being Italian is probably part of your blood uh, to be a family man. How do you balance those uh, those aspects of your life where you have to be on call for you know second opinions throughout the day probably? At the same time, you have to be there for your kids' games and and be active. So for Dr. Khalid, for instance, he's interested in becoming a, a team physician at some point in time. Uh, so for people like him, you know, what are what are the secrets to balancing everything? Well, it's hard. It's hard to do everything. And I must admit, you know, I, I probably didn't spend as much time with my children and their activities as I, you know, should have or could have. Uh, so it is a, it is a, it is an issue. There's no question, you know. So uh, I do think family is important. I think having, having a base, you know, uh, somebody that loves you or a family that loves you is really important to provide stability. Um, you know, you need a job to keep you happy day to day, but you do need a, you know, an infrastructure to keep you, keep you sane. Um, and so I think the important thing is that the time that you are at home, you know, it's got to be devoted to, to your, uh, your significant other and your kids, you know? So yeah, I was away from home a lot, you know, and I was, uh, operating and traveling, but when I was at home, it was, I wasn't bringing my, my work home. In other words, I wasn't on the phone and, and uh, I wasn't, you know, on my computer getting stuff ready. I, you know, I did that at night when the kids were at sleep, uh, you know, to, to get things ready. So I think the time that you're home, you have to try and focus and make that, you know, uh, directed at your kids and your family. So yes, I think your, 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 your significant other needs to understand that you're, you know, they, this is your job and you're going to be away from home and you're going to have some other things to do. And all those things are directed at making the, the whole family successful and the whole family happy. And yes, you're going to be away from some functions. Um, and yeah, I, I get reminded of those times that I missed, you know, by my wife, um, you know, in a, in a kidding fashion. Um, and I know that, and I know that that's been, you know, but on the other hand, I, I think, uh, I think if you are focused and listening, you know, so when you get home from work, in other words, you know, like there was a time we had four children that were under the age of six and I would come home, you know, at eight or nine o'clock at night after a long day of surgery and the house is completely upside down and there's stuff everywhere and, you know, there's no dinner ready. Well, the wrong thing to do is to say, what the hell is going on here? You know, and expect <laughs> things to be organized. I think the, the better thing to do is to go and, and start rolling around with the kids and, uh, you know, 
make more of a mess and uh, and or clean up or, or do something like that. And and uh, so I, I think you can do those things. Um, you need to, to obviously have a partner that that understands that, you know, and that's that's what they're getting into. Um, so I was lucky. My wife was uh, her father was an orthopedic surgeon. So she knew about being on call and being away. And uh, but and then the sports thing, I think once the kids get a little older, they can share in those things. You know, like I brought them to the locker room and uh, I would bring them to the hospital and, you know, they came on trips. Um, so at Iowa, we went to 13 bowl games in 14 years. The whole family came to the bowl games. They knew the players, you know, they get in the elevator together. So, and you know, and then there's going to be benefits at some point. So in, in the early years, it's a bit of suffering you know, not being at home and helping out, but then uh, there's going to be some benefits in the little bit older years. Yeah. That's great. Dr. Khalid, when you're a sports uh, team doctor, take me along to your games. I'll be one of your <laughs> active, active kids. So. Yeah, you, you come with me wherever I go, man. <laughs> okay, good. You can see my, uh, you can see my foot patients with me. <laughs> no, you, can, you can have all that. That's all you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, dr amandola how have you guys been managing the uh the, the covid stuff with a with your sports program and returning because it, it shut down i think right before the acc tournament right did you guys get any games in no we were just <clears throat> we were just getting ready for our first game so we were at the hotel the day of our first game and it was like um just after breakfast around 10 o'clock in the morning and we had a game at two, you know, uh -huh. Florida State was supposed to play at noon. Uh -huh. And uh, they were on the court getting ready around then. Um, and that's when, uh, you know, we had a, well, we had a team meeting the night while we, you know, we went to the, uh, to um, Greensboro uh, for the ACC tournament. Um, we had that first, first night, uh, first practice the next day. So we were there a day and a half early, and then we were getting ready on the Thursday for our first game. And then uh, at 11 in the morning, that's when uh, it was decided. But it was a, it was a team meeting, and uh, Coach K was superb, uh, and he was communicating with the president of the university. And and then things were starting to fall apart after uh, Rudy Gordert, uh, you know, tested positive. Right. And then uh, I think the Big Ten decided to cancel their tournament, and then it just kind of. The ACC, I think, was the next group, and uh, so yeah, it was uh, it was it was too bad, and uh, so no sports since then. Um, we've been working hard, you know, getting ready. So football is coming back next week, and wow. uh, men's and women's basketball is supposed to come back, I think, on the nineteenth of this month. Uh, I think we got a good plan um, going forward, but. There's always seems to be new new things coming up. Like in the last 24 hours, you know, we had uh, the Ivy League canceling for the yeah. fall, and then uh, we had Ohio State and UNC kind of uh, uh, stopping their voluntary workouts. So nothing's happened yet here at Duke, but uh, I, I think we have a good group. Uh, you know, kind of putting the 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 plan together. Um, I don't know if you guys want to know any any details, but uh, basically we're bringing all the uh, all the athletes um, back, and then uh, the third week in August we're bringing back all the students. Everybody's going to get tested when they come back. Wow. We have a plan for isolation and quarantine. Um, 
So anybody who tests positive or anybody who uh, contacts somebody that's positive, we have an isolation plan. Um, testing is a, is a bit of a problem, you know, so at Duke, we have, we have testing at Duke, uh, but they have kind of tiered levels, you know, so taking care of patients and taking care of hospital staff is, is a priority or symptomatic people and athletes are at a little bit lower level. And the, uh, the tests, you know, take a bit of time to, to get back, you know, the results of the tests. So we've been working with a couple other companies, uh, private companies to make sure we're covered in terms of doing tests when, when necessary. Yeah, Nick, Did you have Nick any Verma, specific? Uh, well, I was, I was going to mention the cost of the test too. Nick Verma mentioned $400,000, I think, for a university to test all of its athletes. I think I think it was two nights ago at that AOSSM annual meeting. That's a lot of money you know, for, for big programs. It's not a huge deal. But when you get to like smaller schools, um, I don't know, that can be kind of tough. But I don't know. Well, it is. I think the general cost is around $100 a test, you know, for the, P- for the PCR test, wow. you know, plus or minus, plus or minus uh, 10 or $15, depending on the company. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of things, you know, in terms of the testing, um, you know, like the person, the people doing the testing have to wear protective equipment. Right. Um, and that's another, it's another cost. And, and um, some companies do everything themselves. Uh, at Duke, obviously, the, you know, the staff at Duke do the testing mm-hmm. and they have to wear PPEs. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, but... I can tell you from the top down, from the university president down, they really want to do what's safest for the, for the athletes. So we, we had to go through a discussion of, uh, for example, the NBA just started uh, and they're testing their athletes every day. Yeah. So the right. 300 <laughs> players in Orlando get tested every day. Um, the NHL, uh, once they start uh, their bubble, they're going to test every second day. And then Major League Baseball is testing, from my, my understanding, twice a week. So we had to go through a discussion with our hospital leaders why there's a difference in testing. Right. And, uh, you know, at, at, uh, in the NBA, uh, there's such, such a limited number of uh, players uh, that they wanted to make sure that everybody was tested daily and that it, they could keep playing in practice as, as long as they were testing negative. Rather than say, okay, we have somebody on a team who's test positive. So the other 12 players that made contact with them, we have to isolate them for right. 10 minutes. You know, it just doesn't make practical sense. So it's a little bit different. I think uh, with a, uh, some university teams, like we have, I think we have a good isolation and quarantine plan. So I think if we get, say when we start football next week, we have, you know, five or six positives, we can isolate them, isolate their contacts, and we still do the... Yeah. And uh, I think if we mitigate the disease and, and do everything we're supposed to do, I think we can, we can do it with our, our plan instead of testing everybody on a daily basis and having to get results within 24 hours. Yeah, I think it's, we're all excited for the return of sports. We've, uh, it's been really tough for the last few months, just not, not really having anything to watch. And if we can do it safely, then, that would be the best case scenario. I do, I do wonder for the NBA athletes who basically have to be away from uh, contacts for 
several months, right? What was it two or three months they have to, yeah. they can't see their friends or family. That, that's got to be, that's got to be such a challenge for them, I would think. I think it's a huge challenge. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that was one of their biggest concerns, you know. Um, I mean, this whole COVID thing is, is mentally straining. You know, I'm sure you guys are feeling it. I'm feeling it. Uh, that's why I'm, I'm you know, not yeah. on a regular basis. I feel like I'm in, uh, you know, battle mode. Um, I, I, I have never grown anything, but, you know, with this uh, COVID thing, I feel like, you know, you're waiting, you're waiting for things to, to move yeah. on. Um, yeah, so I think mental health and uh, issues is a big thing in the NCAA as well and that's been brought up and uh they have a number of resources in the ncaa we just got a thing today from from brian hainline and the uh and the ncaa and then our our uh sports psychologist as well to to provide some services but i i, I agree with you i think uh it's it is a stress you know to have this prolonged issue that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon Yeah, so maybe I don't know. Maybe we can switch gears now a little bit. Um, so, one thing I I haven't really been able to ask anyone because I don't know any former AOSSM presidents is how uh, how how do you how did you decide or get involved with the AOSSM? How has that shaped your career? And uh, what what is that? Um, how has that molded your your life and your career going forward, or from when you started? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's, uh, like, first of all, I commend you guys for doing this thing. Like I, I'd like to be doing what you guys do. Um, <laughs> You're always welcome. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, uh, I'm sure you guys learn a lot from everybody uh, every, every week. And, uh, you guys are going to be the smartest people on the earth. Um, I, all I can say is that you need people along the road to be your, your mentor, be your colleague and uh, and and that's what happens over time is that uh, you have people that uh, help you and uh, they guide you and you you know I think as individuals we all evaluate things like you guys I'm sure you evaluate everything when when uh, Jay watches me operate I'm sure he's saying well you know why is he doing that and why is he doing this um, so you everybody evaluates things but when you have somebody that is your uh, trusted friend or colleague and they say something to you I think you think about it more and you put some uh, effort into understanding it so I was lucky enough to have um, so Jack Kennedy was my team physician uh, in London Ontario and he was uh, one of the uh, presidents of the OSSM he was president uh, in 1983 of the OSSM he was the first Canadian to be president of the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine, and um, and then my uh, my my next uh, physician, Peter Fowler, was also president. You know, uh, so Peter Fowler trained under Jack Kennedy, and he was president uh, in uh, 2003, and uh, he got you know he got me quite involved with AOSSM. And uh, so I would say that that's probably one of the reasons they, my two of my mentors uh, really felt the AOSSM represented what we were trying to do in uh, sports medicine. They thought it was a good society. It was a, a research-based society. Uh, they both felt that uh, there was uh, integrity. In other words, there wasn't much backdoor politics. Mm -hmm. 
and doing things. So um, I joined AOSSM in 1991 and, and then uh, just kept, you know, volunteering and I got on some committees and then, you know, just moved along the path. Um, and, I, and I think it's been a good organization. You know, we have three journals. Uh, we have the number one rated journal in orthopedics, as you know. Um, but I've also been a member of uh, the Arthroscopy Association since 1991. And I've been a member of the uh, Foot and Ankle Society since 1991. So I've been a member of all three societies. And I've been quite involved with all three. Um, and that was one of the things that I was told in the beginning of my career is like, Ned, you need to, to focus on one area. You can't do, you know, three different organizations. But I was on the board of uh, the uh, Arthroscopy Association for several years. And uh, I was on their, uh, you know, the Green Journal, you know, the Arthroscopy Journal Board of Trustees. So one of my other great ideas and thoughts was was really that orthopedic surgery is strong as a specialty orthopedic surgery and you can't break it down into sports and foot and ankle and hand and so i i've always thought that we're strong as a as a single specialty orthopedic surgery and yes we're all part of subspecialty societies but we really need a strong mothership to to keep the specialties going and to keep the field of orthopedic surgery going. Like we need advocacy in Washington. We need, you know, you asked earlier yeah. about, are we gonna move towards, uh, you know, uh, government controlled healthcare? Well, I think the way that we can help and deliver care is to have a strong specialty. And, and I think if we keep orthopedic surgery as a strong specialty, uh, that it will, it will, it will uh, maintain that. And so, I also got involved with the academy. I've been on the board of the academy and I've been on the uh, American Board of Orthopedic Surgery for the reasons, for those reasons. So even though I've been involved with sports, I've been involved in orthopedics as a whole because I think you have to have a, a strong field of orthopedic surgery to make sure all the subspecialties are maintained and, and everybody's well represented. So, um, as I, as I, you know, I, I don't, I'm talking too much, but you know, I think in your oh, first few years, your first few years of practice, you become a good surgeon. Mm -hmm. I would say the next five to ten years, so your first five years, you you become and you solidify yourself as a good surgeon. The next five or ten years, you start to understand the scope. You know, like who are you really affecting and who's affected by orthopedic surgery. So that's where you start thinking of organizations and committees and getting a little bit more involved with your community. And, uh, and then after that, after you're, you're, you know, 15, I would say then you're at the peak of your career. And then you start saying, well, this is great. This is a great specialty. How can I protect it? How can I make it grow? And then that's where you start getting more involved in a, so I guess that explains my, yeah. my, my involvement with these societies. Well, that was great. Um, thanks for that. That's awesome. We, we've talked a little bit about uh, mentorship already, just you, know, you bringing it up. What, what, um, how do you become a good mentor and how do you become a good mentee? Because it's a two-way street. You know, so for those of us who are looking to be mentors or those of us who are looking to be good students, what are, what are the keys both ways? Well, I think, first of all, you can't force it. You know what I mean? You can't, 
it, there has to be some natural evolution of the relationship. Um, you know, for example, Jay, you're, you know, in the operating room, your behavior um, is, is, is really good. Like, I think you, I think you, you're a good surgeon, you do a good job, take care of patients well, which makes me happy. But in terms of a mentor-mentee relationship is that, um, you know, first of all, you, you, uh, you don't ask too many questions, but you ask some questions. You know, it's a very uh, easygoing relationship. And so from my point of view, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, okay, is, is he really interested in hearing what I have to say about this topic? And I think you, I think you are, and you know, from my judgment, maybe I'm wrong, but it's a very, it's an evolving relationship where I feel like you're listening. And then, uh, especially if you bring something up a couple of days later that I said, you know, and you bring it up a couple of days later, and then, so I feel like, okay, uh, this, this could, this could become a good, a good relationship. And so then I start asking you about, you know, what are you doing and what's your career and what are you interested in? And I, I think it has to develop in that way. There's got to be kind of a mutual understanding rather than getting assigned, okay, you're so-and-so's mentor yeah. and you're so-and-so's mentee. I don't think it happens that way. Um, and, uh, and based on my personal history, my relationships with former fellows are, again, to this day, I've, you know, fellows from 20 years ago are some of my best friends. Uh, and, you know, at the academy meeting, we get together, you know, even if it's just for five minutes, you know, we, we just, you know, say, let's meet on this corner or have a drink and you don't have to, you know, spend the whole meeting together. But, um, and, and uh, you're reliable. You can call each other at any time for advice and stuff like that. And so um, I, I personally like the uh, mentor relationship. And I like my mentee relationship. Like I call my people up as well. You know, these people I've mentioned, I still communicate with them. And, uh, you know, we, get, we, we send some greeting at uh, Christmas time. Or if I have some, I need some advice for something, I, I call them up and say, what do you think? Um, so personally, I think it's a good thing, mentor-mentee relationship. So I, I think I look for it. And uh, I think if it's evolving, then you just go ahead and do that. Yeah, that's great. I, I know I know a lot of residencies, maybe not a lot of residencies, but I know our residency towards the end was trying this system where kind of like you said, they assign a mentor to a mentee. Um, you kind of get placed and you know, I, I don't know what thought goes into it or how they pick who goes to who, but right. um, yeah, I don't know how well that works out. Cause it's like you said, it has to be natural. You have to have some sort of shared interest, shared teaching style and learning style. I think there's a lot more that goes into it than you can predict or assign. Um, yeah, I, I agree. Well, I've had, you know, like I've had residents, you know, in three different programs and um you know, I have I have some I have some relationships with uh, residents where uh, it's just such a formal relationship that I spend most of my time breaking down the formality. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like just okay, just relax. Everything's okay. You know, it's just uh, you know, Jay. You know how it is. We have some residents at Duke that are yeah. very regimented, very formal, and uh, it's you know, I, I I think it's hard to build a mentor-mentee relationship that way where you know, you just feel like you have to approach everything in a, in a regimented fashion. It should be a more relaxed, easygoing, uh, enjoyable 
type of uh, interaction. I remember you saying those exact things to a, uh, a student a few weeks ago, um, Roadrunner Service. Just just relax. Like, you know, it's, it's going to be great. We're going we're gonna to have a good time. So uh, that, was, that was actually pretty funny when I heard that. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think the best mentors that I have are the ones that I could text out of the blue about nothing to do with medicine. You know, nothing <laughs> right. to do about orthopedics, about politics or sports or whatever. It's, the, you know, those are the relationships that you keep going forward. Well, I hope you guys, I hope you guys, uh, you, you know, this, this thing you guys are doing, this uh, podcast, um, I'd be, you guys need to write a book about it. <laughs> All these people that you're meeting. I'd be interested yeah. in, uh, well, I'm going to have to watch some of these. Yeah, they're, they're, they've been pretty good. You know, we, we, uh, we, we try to get a wide variety of people from friends of ours to uh, people we find interesting. And, and, you know, we really just try to keep it like a conversation, just let it flow and, and see where it goes. And I feel like that's, you know, keep that relaxation and that's where you get the best out of people. Yeah, and, uh, I, I, learn every, I learn something new every week. I've, yeah, everyone in orthopedics, we all have a, we all have a common mission to take care of patients with orthopedic problems, but everyone comes from a different background and perspective. So in order to really function in the system, it's, I think it's important to have an understanding of, of where people are coming from. And this has just been really educational for me doing this every week. And this is, most of this is Mo's idea, so I got to give him credit. It was, uh, a, it was a quarantine idea. <laughs> yeah. Because we, we were, we would we were have, kind of, yeah, we'd have yeah. conversations over text you know, about all these issues that would, and we'd talk over for like an hour about diversity and, you know, George Floyd and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, you know, if we're putting all of this in text, why don't we just do a podcast about it and just talk to someone for an hour and put it out there and see what happens. And I don't know, people seem to like it so far. So <laughs> we'll, we'll keep going. Yeah. It's been fun. So um, I guess, so one, one question that we ask uh, most of our guests, uh, if we remember, uh, I'm, I'm, curious. I'm curious if anyone's asked you this before. Do Do you have a favorite bone in the body? Huh. <laughs> uh -uh. I guess that's that's. Wow, we left you speechless. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Hardest question you've been asked all hour. Well. Yeah, no, I, I guess you have to, you know, watch your language on your show. Uh, <laughs> no, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they, what they, you know, they, they, what they say about Italians are great lovers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right. There's no better way to end that. <laughs> that's, the best way to end. that's the best ending we've had. <laughs> so. Oh, man. Um, Thank you again for your time. And personal, on a personal note, thank you for an awesome year. It's uh, the, the two months I've spent with you have been amazing. And we have a social activity coming up in a few weeks. So that'll be fun as well. Um, but thanks for coming on our show again. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jay. And, uh, and uh, anyways, it's great speaking with both of you guys. But uh, obviously, uh, I've had a good, a good opportunity to work with you, Jay. And, and uh, I can just say you're very... Uh, um, very easygoing and, and fun to work with in the operating room. Like, I think you're, uh, um, you take care of patients very well. I trust you completely, which is, but you don't, you're not, you know, you're not anxious or hyper about it. And, um, 
you're a good surgeon, uh, technically very good. But again, I think the comforting and, and uh, enjoyable part is just that, uh, you know, you, I think you can talk, uh, I can talk. If I'm not saying anything, um, I think you, you're very perceptive of what's going on around, you know, the operating room. I think you probably sense when I'm not happy with some of the things going on um, and stuff like that. So I think you got, uh, you, you know, you got some extra sensory perception, which I think makes you a good, a good surgeon and a good doctor. And uh, that's another thing, you know, you asked about taking care of athletes. You, you have to be able to sense the anxiety level in the athlete and the family when you're, when you walk into a room. And I, th I think you can do that. I think you do that. I don't think, uh, but you don't display any anxiety. In other words, you don't, your facial expression, you know, is uh, very calm. Uh, so I, I think you're going to, you're going to, you're going to do fine. You're going to do really well. So it's been fun working with you. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Amendola, thank you uh, for the hour. Um, you got to come back. We got to do this again because there's a lot more to talk about. So. All right. No, I'm happy to do that. And uh, But thanks for doing it. And uh, have a good night. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Have a good night. Good night. All right. And that'll do it. What a great episode. Thanks, Dr. Amendola, for giving us an hour of your time. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode and the podcast. If you do enjoy the episode, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us out with the search and growing the podcast. Uh, you can also get in touch with us on Twitter at OrthoTalkPod. All of our episodes are online at our website, OrthoTalkPod.com. You can email us, theorthopodcast at gmail.com. Um, we got a lot of stuff coming for the future and hope you guys are enjoying what we're doing. All the feedback has been great. Feel free to get in touch with us if you have any more and, uh, thank you for the opportunity.